Please take your Bibles this morning and open them up to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. We're going to look at the first 18 verses of Daniel chapter 6 this morning. But Daniel, this, this chapter leads us to ask and think of some significant questions. One question in particular that it leads us to consider is, what does it look like to be defiant? What comes into your mind when you picture someone who is acting defiantly? Of course, there are some cultures around the world where you do not act defiant. It is against that culture, against the grain of the culture to be defiant in any way, to stand up against those over you. Some cultures suppress that feeling. But in the United States, where we were founded, right? Our entire country is founded on people standing up and defying a king, saying, thank you, 3% taxes was way too much for us. Of course, we've gone way beyond that now. But what does defiant look like? What does it look like to be defiant? Of course, it will look like different things depending on what stage of life we are in. If you have a baby, that baby, you can tell, becomes defiant. It might arch its back and start kicking out its legs. No, thank you. I want something else. If it's a child, you know, they, will, may, they might throw themselves upon the floor, screaming, crying, whatever it may be. As we get older, our defiance becomes maybe not more mature, but at least subtle. What does it look like to be defiant? What would it look like for us to defy the government or to defy the company at which we work, to defy a manager? What would it look like for you who are students to defy a teacher or a practice at your school wants you to follow. There are different ways in our culture we show defiance. There are marches. There are gatherings of people at city centers or at public places of significance. And they might chant, they might scream, they might hold signs, raise our fist, or simply post on social media. I'm with you as we go to bed. What does it look like to be defiant? Is there such a thing as Christian defiance? We read earlier from Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my namesake. Does that mean that Christians are to not be defiant? Daniel 6 shows us a glimpse of what it looks like to live and follow God defiantly. It is, what we see here, a a defiant devotion on the part of Daniel. It is dangerous, dangerous devotion, dangerous to Daniel himself, as we will see. But more more importantly, Daniel's devotion to his God and, and faithful devotion to God is seen as dangerous to those whom it defies. So why don't you follow along 
as I read Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. We'll make a few comments along the way, and then we will take a moment to pray. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over. Darius, you will remember, he is back in 30, chapter 5, verse 30 and 31. He is named king over Babylon. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, these are government officials, to be over the whole kingdom. And over those three, and over those, over these 120 satraps, there were going to be three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give an account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some art concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. And you should just hear the, the flattery like oozing from them, all right? This is, these men are laying it on thick. King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not, cannot alter, nor be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now when Daniel knew that the, written, that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since his early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree. Have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, he does not show due regard for you, O king. Or for the decree that you have signed. But he makes petition to his God three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. And he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that is no decree or statue which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring. 
with the signet of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. The king went to his palace that night and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him, and also his sleep went from him. Would you join me in prayer this morning? Father, this is indeed your word. It is good. And I pray, O God, that you would give us eyes to see, ears that delight in it, that we may honor you, that we may know you, that we may follow in the footsteps of Daniel. More importantly, O God, that we may follow in the footsteps of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Know him, trusting in him. It is in his name we pray. Amen. This chapter leaves us with a lot of questions. The first question that you might ask is, who is this Darius? We, we left off at chapter 5, introduced to this person, Darius the Mede, being given the kingdom. We are told he received the kingdom. There are a lot of questions as to the identity of this person. The reality is, we don't know exactly who Darius is. We do not have any historical record of him. That is, there is no historical record of this time period that names Darius, this king who is reigning at this time. There are historical records that name another king, Darius I, that comes later, but not at this time. And so you will have some who will posit that the author of Daniel has simply made up this person, Darius, to kind of fit this story. He has crafted this story and created a fictional king and written it as if it was history. This, is a, this would be a troubling account. It would basically mean that there is, you cannot trust the written word of God. You cannot trust the Bible with these historical details. And it's an unsatisfying explanation. It's relying on a fragmentary, incomplete historical record dating over 2,500 years ago from a distant part of the world. It's relying on incomplete records from that time. We know from even recent history how unreliable those records are. A few chapters ago, we saw, or a few weeks ago, we saw that there was a King Belshazzar in chapter 5 who was introduced. And we know that for centuries it was believed that Belshazzar too was simply a a made-up fictional character that served the purpose of the author of Daniel to communicate some ideas. But we're not supposed to take Belshazzar or anything that happens in chapter 5 or chapter 6 or maybe even these other chapters as anything that really and truly happened. We are to take them with a grain of salt take some ideas from them, maybe some encouragement, maybe be inspired, maybe Instagram some things, and then we can go about our day. But that's not really what's going on here. It's not satisfying because Belshazzar, who was believed to be simply a fictional character, we saw that his name and the record of his rule, rule was discovered in the midst of the 19th century. And he who was believed to not exist was finally found to be. And so on one level, part of our answer to the question is, who is Darius? We don't know. It may just be, wait and we will find out. 
wait and perhaps we will find more from archaeology of who this person is. But there are other two identities, other two possibilities that biblical scholars have suggested that both have great weight. One suggestion is that Darius is another name for the general that uh, conquered in the name of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Cyrus, the king of Media and Persia at this time. And this general was given free reign. He conquers Babylon in the name of Cyrus, along with Cyrus. And then he is made king and established there. It is quite possible that that general is this person, Darius. Another possibility that fits up with the historical evidence is that this Darius, this person Darius, is himself King Cyrus. It was not unusual in the ancient world for different people to have different names in different countries. We know Daniel, his Jewish name, had a separate name for when he was living in Babylon. He was called Belteshazzar. It was common. It was ordinary. That also may be a possibility. But the reality is, we just don't know. We don't know who Darius is from historical record, but we are certain because of his presence here in Daniel chapter 6, because of the, the historical accuracy of everything else that Daniel has written, that what he writes here, his record here, is to be relied upon, is to be accurate. So we don't know exactly who this Darius is, but we do see what he does. You see, he, the very first thing, and this is, this, this is logical sense what he's doing here, the first thing he must do, he has become the brand new king of, the, of what was once the Babylonian Chaldean Empire, which stretched an enormous and took in an enormous part of the known world. From east to west, north and south, the Babylonian Chaldean Empire was extensive. It was massive. How do you organize? How do you rule such a large area? The process, the way they did it then, was they divided it up into a number of different provinces, regions. We know historical records tell us that there were about 20 to 23 areas or regions, major regions. They call these regions satrapies, okay? It's a, it's a weird word, I get it. You're, you probably won't be able to use that on words with friends, but that's what they call this areas, satrapies. And those who officiated and ruled these satrapies, these regions, were themselves called satraps. That's the title that they are given, all right? There are 120 government officials of the different ranks and file who would be overseeing this large, complex state political bureaucracy. They're the ones who are checking balances, taking taxes, doing everything that is necessary for the state to function. Or as we're told in Daniel chapter 6, he establishes them. Why? So that the king might suffer no loss. So that all that the money that is due to the king gets to the king. That's the aim of these satrapies. That's the aim of these men who are officiating. And while he names 120 of these satraps, these government officials... He puts over all of them three individuals, three men whom he calls governors. Here were translated governors. Their responsibility is to make sure and to hold everyone beneath them into account. They're to follow 
the money trails. They're the ones who are going to be checking bank statements. They're the ones who are making sure that that grift, that corruption, that bribery isn't happening. And over time, period of a year or two, we don't know how long, Daniel shows himself to this new king as being incredibly trustworthy. One who does such an excellent job that Darius is determined, he begins to make plans of putting Daniel at the top of this. So not only are you going to be the 120 government officials and then three over them, but now Daniel is going to be given another position and he's going to be the fact checker to all other fact checkers. That's how this is set up. But of course, Daniel's success brings about opposition. A group of individuals, we are told here in the New King James, that they, they throng together, they gather together. And it's more than just that these, these individuals are like meeting up happenstance at the same time and walking in together to see the king. The idea is that here is a conspiracy these from people from all different levels of government, they are gathering together to conspire against Daniel. They do not want to see him succeed, to come and, and, and be elevated to this position. They are colluding. This is, this is the very real-life picture of men in back rooms, smoke-filled rooms, making decisions about what will happen. This is, to use that phrase from news reports in our day, this would be the deep state, okay? This, this is all the conspiracy to undermine Daniel. And we are given some evidences of what it is that elicits this response from them. Part of it is jealousy. We see in verse 3 that he is getting raised up and that is a position they don't want him to have. They would prefer for themselves, for one of their number to have it. But it's not, I don't just think it's, it's jealousy and envy that causes them to respond with such a vast conspiracy. Remember the, the primary duty of these men was to make sure that all the money that was supposed to get to the king, all the, all the work that was ordered out by the king, all payments from the king. Everything was administrated correctly. Imagine how much room there was for bribes to pass hands. How many pockets could be lined. How much money that was designated for one project really ends up in the pockets of someone else. These three men who are over top of it, they're the ones who are supposed to catch all that. But that also means they're the ones who could have their pockets lined the most. But Daniel won't do it. Daniel, we read, he's an excellent spirit in him. He is actually holding everyone beneath him accountable. He is the one who's actually following the money. He is the one who is holding those who are taking bribes. He is punishing them. He is the one who's doing it. You can imagine how this upsets the apple cart. He is the last person they want in charge. They do not want him holding all of them accountable. I'm pretty sure it is fear and frustration on their part that it begins to drive it. But we find that there are evidences of other powerful motivators here. Not only is it envy, not only is it fear. But you notice in verse 13, when they come to the king, 
and they accuse Daniel by name. They don't just give him Daniel's name as if he, you know, hey, Daniel, you remember him? Your favorite advisor. Do you notice how they describe him? Verse 13. So they answered and said before the king, that Daniel, who was one of the captives, one of the exiles from Judah. I want you to see part of what is driving them here to attack Daniel is that he is a foreigner. He is not one of them. He does not belong. Maybe he, maybe he's, this is a good reminder for us to turn off phones. Maybe he is, he still speaks his Aramaic with an accent. He's not one of them. Today we would call this racism, we might call this anti-Semitism. He is one of those exiles from Judah. He is one of those exiles from Judah. And because of that, he is despised. And so they lead this, they, they create this elaborate trap to target Daniel. And they do it in a roundabout way. You, they, Daniel's favored, they know they can't attack him firsthand. That would only earn the wrath of Darius. So what do they do? They're really smart about it. They get Darius to be the one who by his own hand has to hold Daniel to account. And it's fascinating. They know Daniel is too faithful to the king. They can't catch him in any of his work. So their only hope is to pit Daniel's faithfulness in his work against his faithfulness to God. They know that the only thing that Daniel, that will cause Daniel to be unfaithful to the king is if it comes into conflict with his faithfulness to God. And so they attack Daniel by making a, a, capital, a capital crime, a capital punishment, punishable by death, to pray or seek the favor of any person or deity other than King Darius. And you see what this does to King Darius, right? It, it makes him out to be a god. You can't talk, you can't pray to any other god except who? Me. Well, who does that say the god is? And Darius here is, you can see he is easily flattered. Oh, you guys had this idea? You want to make me a god for 30 days? Okay. I mean, I knew I was doing well as a king, but I didn't know I was doing this well. And according to the law of the Medes and Persians, a, a law which is going to come up later in your Bibles in Esther, when the man named Haman wants to attack the Jews, they leverage this law against King Darius to strike at Daniel. How would you respond if you were Daniel? How would you respond this week as impossible and unlikely a legislation like this is in our country at this time? How would we respond if this week it became Illegal, punishable by imprisonment, loss of goods, loss of life, if we were to be found worshiping God privately or publicly. What would, what would happen to Christianity and churches in our country? What would happen to us? What would change with you? And for many Christians around the world, this is the reality that they live in. This is not a hypothetical situation. They live this reality day after day after day after day. 
And while we as Christians in this country have enjoyed unprecedented freedoms to this end, the reality is devotion to the Lord will always be seen on some level as dangerous. So what does devotion look like in the part of Daniel? What does a defiant devotion to God look like? What does a dangerous devotion to God look like? We read Daniel, verses 3 to 4. He is a man of upright character. He is a man of excellent character. Uh, an excellent spirit was in him. That is, he is a man in whom is honest, in whom is, he's a man who is honest and in and full of integrity in all of his work. Part of the purpose of Daniel in this book is to teach and encourage us how to live in a world that opposes God and his people. And Daniel here illustrates by his own life what it looks like to live in a world, what it looks like to be faithful to God in our regular lives. When faithfulness to God is not popular. And for him, it's, it overflowed into his work. His devotion to God, his faithfulness at work was a symptom. It was an evidence of his love for God, of his faithfulness to God. We are to be men and women of character. We are to be honest. We are to be full of integrity. We, we are to be those whom our bosses trust, like Daniel. And when we speak, they're not wondering, did we tell a lie? Are we honest? Are we softening the edges to make ourselves look better? When we do our work, do we... Do it well. Men who are in construction, when you give a quote, are you honest in that quote? When you report to your boss, this is what I have done, or to a client, this is what I'm doing for you. Are you actually doing it? Have you actually done it? Or are we cutting corners? There's always cut ways to cut corners. Are you doing what you're supposed to? Students, are you writing those papers, or are you going online and consulting chat GPT or whatever else to help you know, write that paper for you? Kids, your parents tell you to clean your room, tell you to do a chore. How much of that stuff that's on your floor just finds its way shoved in the closet, shoved under the bed? How much of that chore is actually done? But to be honest and integrity, full of integrity. But not just at work, in our worship. Devotion to God flows out of worship. And Daniel, he hears about what is being commanded. He hears about this piece of legislation that has been signed. And his first response is to go to the Lord. And I just want to mark, mark it out here. His defiance, his defiance of the world, of his government, came in the form of something incredibly ordinary. And for Daniel to march, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get all the people to march with him, how unjust this is. You're breaking our rights to worship whatever God we please. He, he doesn't form a, a, a prayer chain. He doesn't have, uh, doesn't go public with any of this. He doesn't do any of that. What he aims to do is go about his day and pray. This is an ordinary act. It's not hypocritical. He doesn't pray to be seen. He merely goes to pray where he can be seen where he's always prayed. He's not trying to be hypocritical, nor is he trying to hide it. He is merely doing what he has always done. And that in itself, while ordinary, is absolutely courageous. Devotion to God, while 
absolutely ordinary, it is the most defiant, courageous thing we can do. And it's fascinating. He doesn't, he doesn't think now, oh, they don't, they're outlawing prayer. I better go pray. This is simply something he has always done. This is my custom. I go to pray these times a day. I heard about this. I'm going to go pray. This is what I do. How quickly we leave off the practice of the worship of God, whether private or public, because of some challenges or opposition that comes our way. Kids, if you really want teenagers, young men and young women, you really want to live defiant to the world. You really want to show your independence. Don't don't cover yourself in tattoos. Everybody's doing that. Don't pierce yourself everywhere. Everybody's doing that. You want to do that? You really want to defy the world and exceed expectations and act courageously? Go to church every Sunday. Read your Bible and pray. It'll be the most revolutionary thing you do. It'll be the most subtle and courageous form of devotion and defiance you can give. Everybody does these other things. The world is full of them. Ordinary acts, courageous acts of defiant devotion. It's not just devotion that is personal. He is, he is devotion is grounded in God's word. It's grounded in God's promises. You see this in this passage as he is going to pray. One of the things that we find is when he prays, he goes to the Lord and he prays facing Jerusalem. His windows are open in the upper room in verse 10. Now Daniel knew that the writing was signed. He went home and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as was his custom since early days. That is, he prays towards Jerusalem. Why? Why does he pray towards Jerusalem? It's not as if Jerusalem is like Mecca, all right? And Jews were to pray towards that. Like you and I, we are not to pray towards Jerusalem because that's where Christ was crucified. No, what we find this phrase, pray towards Jerusalem, in two other passages in Scripture, and both of them are covering the same event. You could find it if, you, if we had time. We could go and turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. And there Solomon, King Solomon, is dedicating the temple in Jerusalem. And as he is dedicating the temple, he, he is giving this lengthy prayer. You think, I pray long? His prayer was lengthy. And he, he prays, and as he's praying, he calls on the Lord and says, Look, if we as a nation sin, and you send to us famine and agricultural pestilence and problems, and we repent and turn to you, cause us to look to Jerusalem and pray towards Jerusalem, not because there is something significant about the city, but because that's where God had made his name known. That's where God has made his presence felt. Look towards God, in essence, he is saying. When we look to you in humility and dependence, give us relief. Forgive us. And if we go out to battle and we lose in battle and we lose in war and we are subjected by other nations because we have sinned against you, oh God, cause us to remember your grace. Cause us to get on our knees and pray towards Jerusalem and you will forgive us. And when we are conquered by nations and we are exiled and taken captive, 
he goes on to pray. Wherever we are taken, cause us to look to Jerusalem, pray towards Jerusalem, and you will remember your covenant toward us. David is, I'm sorry, Daniel is praying with the promises and the word of God gripping his mind and imagination. The word of God is far more real to him than whatever threat King Darius and those who are conspiring against him make. Daniel's posture in his prayer leaves no doubt as to the nature of his mind at this moment. The satellite dish of his heart is directed solely toward God so that the images coming to him, the words of God coming to him, are crystal clear. The foundation of Daniel's devotion is God's word, is God's promises. Friends, faith that's going to last and endure, faith that's going to be defiant, has to be grounded in something. It cannot be grounded in what we feel. It must be grounded in what God says is real. And we need our devotion to God in our work. We need devotion to God in our worship. But finally, devotion to God above others. Devotion to God above all others. Part of what we are warned about in this text is the foolishness of trusting in human leaders. Darius signs this piece of legislation. Daniel is the favored servant. He is being considered for the top position. He doesn't go to Darius and make his plea, make his case. He goes to the Lord. Daniel doesn't hope that Darius is going to have a change of heart here. Darius is, is a man who has... It is, he is full of irony. At the beginning of the chapter, he is wise in how he determines and orchestrates and administers his, his government. And then a few verses later, he is being manipulated by his advisors and counselors. They're coming to him. They're laying it on thick. They're flattering him. Oh, king, live forever. We, you are God, basically. Why don't we just all pray to you? And Daniel, I'm sorry, Darius loves it. He eats it up. And what's what's ironic is that while for this period of time, no one in in the empire is allowed to pray to any other god or make a request of anyone other than to King Darius himself, as if Darius can help them, when Darius needs help to change the law of the Medes and the Persians, he's helpless. He struggles all day trying to find a loophole, and he can't. And eventually, it is the counselors and the advisors that come to him. Hey, this cannot be changed. You must do it. And Darius is is forced to almost break his own law as he lowers Daniel down into the den of lions. May your God deliver you. I cannot Maybe your God can. May he deliver you. Daniel doesn't rely on anyone else. He looks only to the Lord. And ultimately, Daniel's faith in this, his devotion, points us forward into the faithful devotion of our Savior. 
You know, there are numerous parallels between Christ and Daniel in this passage. Daniel is almost a pale shadow of the faithfulness and the faithful one of Christ Jesus. Both are faithful in their lives, just as the conspirators couldn't find fault with Daniel's work. So the conspirators against Christ, they must hire false witnesses to testify against him. Both pray to the Lord in the midst of the trial. Daniel in his room, Christ in the garden. Both are conspired against. Both are the victims of leaders who get manipulated. Daniel is the victim of Darius. Christ the victim of Pilate. Both are delivered over to death. But the difference is, even as we marvel at Daniel, Daniel himself wouldn't want us to stay there. Daniel points us forward to the one who can save. Daniel is himself one who is relying on God to help and deliver him. Christ is himself the deliverer. Daniel seeks to be delivered. Christ is the one who by not being delivered, by by willing to go and to be crushed and to be murdered and to be killed upon the cross, it it is by him dying that he delivers us from death, from the penalty of death and from the penalty of sin. Daniel's delivered over to death. And next, in a couple of weeks, we will see that he is rescued, delivered by God, but Christ... He experiences death. And in his dying, he conquers death for all who trust in him. Friends, today, let me urge you. Daniel is one that we can look at, learn from, respect, follow to some degree. But you would be a fool to trust in Daniel because Daniel died and is still dead. Jesus died and is risen from the grave. Jesus is alive. And one who can conquer the grave, the one who can ascend to glory, the one who has given promises to rescue and deliver, is surely capable on delivering those who call upon him. Friend, look to him. Defy the world, humble yourself before God, and cling to Christ. And may faithfulness A faith in Christ show itself in our lives in a defiant, dangerous devotion to the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we need your mercy. We need your grace. Oh God, strengthen our weak hands. Strengthen us that we may live as you call us to not finding prayer to you to be the least that we can do, but finding it the very rock from which we live out and do all other things. Oh God, give us grace. Help us, we pray, in the name of your Son, our Savior, our Deliverer, Christ Jesus. Amen.